back into this. Jesus, help us. Help us, help us, help us. You are constantly inviting us into a deeper understanding of your love for us, a deeper trust in your love for us. You're constantly wanting to show us what it means to live by faith, to let your grace impact every area of our lives. And we all need your grace to impact some area of our life today, some area of our heart, some circumstance. So I ask that you would do that. Open our ears, our hearts, our minds, our eyes. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, by the way, the reason we're calling it this, if you're here for the first time, the reason we call it As Told by a Scoundrel is because the guy who wrote this book, Matthew, was a scoundrel. He had a pretty shady past when Jesus called him. Who here had a shady past? Who here has a shady present? You're in good company. You're in good company. Um, my kids, I've noticed something. I, I want my kids to behave. I want them to listen to us. I, I, you know, when, when we say, Tessa, put your shoes on, I don't want to have to say it five more times. I don't want to have to say, Tessa, do you remember what I just said 30 seconds ago? That still applies. Go do it. Like, I don't want to have to do that. I've noticed, though, when they are listening, when they're having a good day, or maybe even a good few days, uh, it can be a double-edged sword. Something can happen. They can get sometimes a little, um, a little cocky about the fact that they've been listening, and then they start to uh, easily point out the fact that their sisters are not listening because they feel good about themselves. And sometimes they can even slip into an entitlement. They are entitled to more than their sisters are who aren't listening. Sometimes a little condescending. Sometimes even they can see themselves as being on the same level as mom and dad. Like there's three parents and then the other two are the kids. It's a double-edged sword. We want them to listen and be obedient, but we also want them to stay humble, right? Constantly aware of their need for God's grace. As a pastor, I want you guys to be all in for Jesus. When people get baptized, I always pray, Lord, protect their heart and keep them pursuing you. Jesus actually said one of the parables that we've studied in this book, um, the parable of the four soils, he said some people are going to receive this good news with joy and then when hardships come, they're going to walk away. He said that's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. He said some people are going to receive it with joy and then the distractions of life are going to choke out this good news. He said that's going to happen and I know it's going to happen and yet for each individual I pray, God, don't let it happen to them. Let them be all in for you. Let them be faithful. Let them be willing to say, whatever it is, whatever you want me to give up, I'll follow you. But that can be a double-edged sword too. Because sometimes when those who are the most faithful to Jesus, who have given up the most, who have sacrificed the most, who serve the most, have been doing that for a uh, number of years or a particular amount of time, we can get a little cocky. We can get a little uh, uh, overconfident that we've been doing that and then can be a little condescending towards others. Can even get a little entitled. Well, God, well, then I've been serving you. Why haven't you answered this prayer? I did this. I've been, going, I've been reading my Bible every day. Why haven't you responded to this situation? Why did you bless that person who's a slacker? 
How many of you know a spiritual slacker? Anybody know anybody in your mind? You're like, somebody's a spiritual slacker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we start to think, well, that's not fair that they're being blessed and I'm, I'm still struggling in this area and I've been faithful to you, Jesus. I've been faithful to you. So this message is actually primarily for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while and you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm all in for Jesus. This is primarily for you. If you're in a position of leadership in our church, this is especially for you, our elders, our board members, staff, our life group leaders, especially for you, especially for you. Because Jesus in this passage that we're going to look at was talking to his disciples who were the most faithful, who gave up, who said, I'm going to follow you. Where else would we go? Jesus gives them a warning. So the title of today is called, Beware the Entitlement of the Faithful. When we're most faithful, we can get entitled. We're actually going to start where we left off last time. December 18th, it was our last message in this book. And if you remember, it was this story of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, okay, I want you to sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, then come follow me. And Jesus didn't say that to this guy because he went around giving this formula to everyone. Sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. No, he could see that this man's heart was stuck on his stuff. It was trapped in a love for his stuff that would prevent him from truly following Jesus. Jesus saw it and was like, you got to let go of your stuff. You got to let go of the thing that you're really in love with, the God that you really worship, your money, your wealth. And this says the rich young man turned away, grieved, and walked away because he could not give up his stuff. And then Jesus said to his disciples, it's very hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond, they're like, well, then who can be saved? If the rich can, because they believe that the rich were especially favored by God. So they're like, if the rich can't, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, even those who are in love with their stuff can be set free to follow me. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Because Peter responds, we're going to be in Matthew 19, starting in verse 27. Peter responds and says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter's like, well, we're not like that guy. He's a slacker, that rich guy who just walked away. That's not us, Lord. We've been the committed ones. We've been the faithful ones. So what's there going to be for us? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus says, there's going to be rewards for you, Peter. Don't worry. I got blessings stored up for you. Whatever sacrifices you make for me, you're going to be blessed for it. You're going to get rewarded for it. Don't worry. I got you covered. If you're ostracized from your family, if you're kicked out of your family for following me, if you lose your job, if you lose your house because of persecution, don't worry. I got stuff stored up for you. You're going to be blessed in this life, but also more in the life to come. And it's okay to be motivated by the rewards that God promises us. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, don't worry. I got you. 
You can't outserve me. I, I got you covered. I'm going to bless you and bless you and bless you. But then he issues a warning. Remember, he's talking to the faithful ones. He's talking to the ones who have shown commitment. He says, yes, you're going to be blessed, Peter. But, next verse, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now that word but, kind of a contrast or a contradiction. It's the other side of the coin from what he's just said. You guys are going to be blessed. But, 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 but. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What does that mean? What's he saying there? Well, he's challenging something. He's issuing a warning to the faithful ones. Because he continues right into chapter 20. So let's go right into chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like. That word for connects it back to the previous passage. Many who are first will be last. Last will be first. What's that mean, Jesus? For the kingdom of heaven is like. He's explaining it with a parable. This is what I mean. When I say many who are first will be last and the last will be first, this is what I'm talking about. And he starts to tell a parable. Kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So a landowner has a vineyard, grapes. They had to be picked at the right time where they're going to be, go bad. So he goes out to find some workers. He goes to, say, the Home Depot, right, where there's some day workers. And he says, hey, guys, come on. Come work in my vineyard. I'll pay you a denarius for the day. Now, a denarius was a healthy day's wage. It's a good wage. For us, consider, you know, maybe 250 bucks for the day, right? It's, you know, it's a good, good day's wage. Not, not exorbitant, but it's decent, healthy. Somebody would be happy, a day laborer would be happy to get that. 250 for the day. A typical day's work was about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So 12-hour work day, sun up to sundown. So this guy goes, gets these guys. They agree. They're happy about a denarius. Notice this. This is important. They are happy to get a denarius. And they go to work for him. He invites them in to go work in the vineyard. About 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace. So three hours later, he goes out again. He finds more standing around doing nothing. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So three hours later, he goes out, sees more workers. He says, hey guys, you come in my vineyard. Here's a big difference. He doesn't tell them a certain amount. He just says, I'll pay you what's right. They trust him, apparently, and they go to work. He went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. So he kept going. He kept getting more workers. Uh, these guys are going to work a shorter amount. Uh, noon, 3 p.m., so that, you know, they got three hours left of work. He brings them in. Verse 6, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? So five in the afternoon would be about an hour before quitting time. Why would he go out and get more workers? We, we don't exactly know. But he goes out for more workers. He finds these guys. He says, why have you been standing around doing nothing? So it's, he, he knows that these guys didn't just show up. They didn't sleep till 4 p.m. and then show up at 5 p.m. waiting around. They've been there all day long. Maybe he saw them at 6 a.m. We don't know. But they're still there. They've been there all day long. Their response, look at their response. Next verse. Because no one has hired us, they said to him. So you also go work in my vineyard. 
Nobody has hired us. We've been here and nobody wanted us. Think about that. Think about that. Think about that. This stood out to me in a different way this time when I went through this passage. Nobody's hired us. Nobody's wanted us. Nobody has picked us for work. And the guy says, well, then you come work for me. This is a parable, so we don't know exactly why nobody would have hired these guys. Why do some people get picked first and others picked last? Maybe they looked frail. Maybe they didn't look as strong. Maybe they didn't look as sturdy as the ones who were picked at 6 a.m. Maybe some of them had disabilities and they weren't picked to work. We don't know. But the guy says, why have you been here doing nothing? They say, nobody's picked us. And he says, well, I'm picking you. I'm picking you. Come, come work in my vineyard. It's 5 p.m., so they only have an hour's worth of work to do. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, this would be different than the way that uh, workers would normally be paid. Normally, the first ones who showed up at 6 a.m. would get their money, their $250, and then they would go off, feed their families, enjoy the night. And then the next ones until, until the, the last ones at 5 p.m. get paid. This owner says, reverse it. Pay the ones who showed up at 5 p.m. first. So the foreman lines them up. The workers, where are we? Verse 9. The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So the 250 bucks. Remember, he didn't tell, with the exception of the 6 a.m. people, he didn't tell anyone else how much he was going to be paying. I uh, would imagine that if you worked for an hour and you got paid 250 bucks, you would be pretty happy. So these guys, I would imagine, walked off going, whoa, can you believe it? 200, you paid a whole denarius. We only did an hour's worth of work. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? So when those, verse 10, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. So let's pause. Why would they expect to receive more? This is important, this is important. Picture this line, right? You're in the back of the line. I'm the guy who got hired at 6 a.m. I see the guy who got hired at 5 p.m. get paid and walk off counting his money, his 250 bucks. And I'm like, well, geez, he got paid 250 bucks. I bet we're going to get paid more because we worked all day long. We did 12 hours worth of work. They only did an hour. So he's probably going to pay us a lot more than that. You know, maybe we're thinking in our heads, it's got to be at least double. You think it's going to be at least double? Maybe triple. Because we, we did 12 times the work, so maybe it's 12 times 250. Right? You start to get these things in your head. Because even though we were okay with a denarius, our expectations have suddenly changed once we see how somebody else is being treated. Right? So they get there, and what happens? Next verse, when they uh, but each one of them also received a denarius. Ooh, ooh, they didn't, they didn't get more like they thought they would. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. So they get there, they get their 250 bucks, which is exactly what the owner promised them. But they start to grumble. They start to grumble. Why? Because their contentment shifted to entitlement. Our contentment gets robbed 
Our contentment before God that we think we're content is tested when others get something we don't think they deserve. You ever notice that? We're good with God and then all of a sudden we're like, we take our eyes off of God and we're like, wait a second. Why are they being blessed? Why are they being allowed to get away with blank? What the heck? What about all the work I've been doing? What about all the serving I've been doing? What about all the sacrifice that I've been doing? And they got that prayer answered, and I'm still waiting on my prayer to get answered? Anybody ever been there? Their contentment, our contentment is tested when others get something we don't think they deserve. And that's what happened to these these workers. Verse 12, they're grumbling, and they say, those who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. So that's the problem. They've been made an equal. They don't deserve to be made an equal. I've been serving you much longer than them, and you are treating them with the same generosity as me. I deserve more. C.S. Lewis uh, talked about, he had this essay on the, the, called The Inner Ring, and he talked about how pride... Um, Pride isn't content to be good at something. Pride isn't content to be included in something. Pride needs to be good at something at the expense of someone else or better at something than someone else. It needs someone else to look at and go, I'm better than they are. Pride needs to be included in something so that someone else is excluded. Right? You, you, you only care and can boast about being a part of the inner ring if there's other people on the outside. If everybody gets to be in the inner ring, then you don't stand out. And these guys wanted to stand out for working 12 hours in the day. They wanted to be treated differently, better. Even though they were content with the denarius, how someone else gets treated and blessed, looks out, gets a generous dose from the owner, all of a sudden they're like, wait a second, that devalues, diminishes the work that I put in all day. They don't want to be made an equal with somebody who's a slacker. Hmm? They don't want to be treated the same way, with the same blessings, with the people who are slackers. I need to be treated better. Or I need you, God, to treat them worse. That's how they were feeling. The owner responded in verse 13, I am not, remember, just real quick, real quick, real quick, before we read that, remember who Jesus is talking to, Peter and the closest disciples who were faithful. Remember, it wasn't the big crowds. This was after the rich young ruler walked away, the slacker. And Peter's like, well, we've given up everything. And Jesus like, yes, I know, I know, I know. And you've got blessing coming. But be warned, be careful. Be careful. Be careful you don't slip into entitlement. All right, let's go back to verse 13. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? I'm not being unfair to you, friend. I'm not being unjust to you. I promised you a denarius. You were content with that. You got exactly what I promised you. 
take your pay and go. He doesn't explain it to them. He doesn't explain why, like these guys, their whole metric system was just like, they're just so disoriented. They're like, I don't get it. By the way, Jesus is not, in case you like think this is about like economics and like how our economy should run and whatnot, that's not what, Jesus is not making a, a, a case about capitalism versus socialism or anything like that. This is about how things work in the God's kingdom, okay? This is about uh, the owner represents God. The workers are, are those who belong to him. The vineyard is the earth, the mission field. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the owner says, and God says, hey, I'm not being unfair to you. I'm giving you what I promised. Verse 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? It's my money. I own it. I decide how much everyone gets paid. It's not your system. I'm not working off your metric system, in other words. We all, us human beings, we have in our minds this metric system. You earn rewards. Even those of us who would say we're saved by grace, we can build up this sense of, well, I'm saved by grace, but I'm more all in for you, Jesus, than that guy. So surely you're going to bless me more than that slacker over there. It's in us. And God has a way of disorienting us and going, well, wait a second. And taking our metric system and throwing it out the window. And saying, no, 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 no. How I dish out blessings is up to me. How I decide to pour out my grace on each person differently is up to me. I'm the owner of the vineyard. Or are you envious because I am generous? That question stuck out to me this week. Are you envious because I'm generous? Do you see somebody who you think shouldn't be getting away with something being blessed and now you're upset? Or you see somebody who hasn't owned their sin yet and you want me to pour out my wrath on them and I haven't. And you're, are you envious because I'm being generous and patient with them? It happens in communities. It happens in our marriages, right? I, I've, I've been loving my spouse and I've been putting in all the work and he or she, they're not doing it. They're not responding. God is still patient with them and we want God to be less patient with them. Stick it to them. Show them how wrong they are. Wake them up. Right? Are you envious because I'm generous and I'm... And I'm, and I'm uh, Slow to anger? Does that make you envious? How other people are treated. How God blesses them. Whether it's with gifts and talents, money and possessions. Less temptations or less hardships, right? Some people struggle with certain addictive tendencies for the rest of their life. And other people could say, man, once I gave my life to Jesus, that desire went completely away. And it's like, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Some people give their life to Jesus when they're young and then have a hard life. And other people, like the rich young ruler, maybe that rich young ruler spent his life with, in, in pleasures and comforts and then on his deathbed gave his life to Jesus. While Peter was being crucified upside down. It's not fair. 
how God blesses other people will show how much or how little we really understand grace. I mean, think about it. Peter was served Jesus, and church history tells us he will be crucified upside down, and there will be people who will give their life to Jesus on their deathbed after spending everything on themselves. And Jesus says to both, you're going to be with me in paradise. Do we get that? Are we okay with that? When we hear about somebody who's a serial killer in prison coming to know Jesus, are we okay with that? Can we say, well, praise God, or are we like, mm, I don't feel right. Something about that don't feel right to me. Think about the, the thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One of them knew, could see, he's innocent. He's the Messiah and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus didn't respond by saying, well, you really didn't do anything for me your whole life. You've been a criminal. You've been selfish. You didn't sacrifice for me. You didn't serve me. You didn't tell anybody else about me. No, he didn't respond about it. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So some of the people that we think deserve God's wrath or God's justice or, or at least deserve less than what we think we deserve, and they're going to be with God in paradise? Are we okay with that? Can we be okay with God blessing them? Can we be okay with uh, them being put in uh, positions giving talents and money, less temptations than us. Can we all be okay with that and celebrate that and trust, you know what, God, your grace on me is for me and the way you're gonna treat me is according to your love for me and my unique relationship with you. Can we be okay with that? Jesus ends with a summary statement in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. He ends exactly the way he ended chapter 19, all one passage. That parable was bracketed by this statement. This statement shows up twice. He said it before the parable. He says it after. The last will be first. The first will be last. The system of rewards, Peter, that you have in your mind is not the way it's going to go down. Yes, you will be rewarded, but it's not going to be according to your uh, system. It's not going to be according to the way the schools dish out report cards. Don't think like that. Trust me. There's actually a moment um, at the end, in John 21, at the end of um, Jesus' you know, earthly ministry. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's on the beach with his disciples. And he tells Peter, he walks Peter aside and he tells Peter that Peter's going to suffer for him and Peter's going to die for him. And Peter seems to be okay with it. And then Peter turns around and sees John following behind and Peter goes, well, what about him? Right? And Jesus responds, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. He might have an easier life. He might not suffer and die like you. But it's not your business. You follow me. Some people are not going to repent of certain sins until much later in life. And you repented earlier. What is that to you? You follow Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus and fix it on them because it will make you frustrated, angry. You'll lose your gratitude and maybe even get jealous. You follow So as we get ready to close, um, I want to ask, what does this mean for you? Like, and what, 
ways do you need to repent? Is there a next step for you? Repent, change your mind. Stop trusting in what you were trusting in and go back to Jesus. Do you need to repent in any way? I'm I'm not assuming that everybody here does, but I am assuming that a good amount of you do. Because I do on a regular basis with this. It challenges me. Sometimes I can get frustrated with people, like we're, we're areas where I feel like I'm strong and I can go, I don't understand. Why, why can't, why would anybody act like that? I don't get it. And God challenges me and goes, hey, if you're strong in an area, it's because of my grace. How did the workers get in the vineyard at 6 a.m.? They were picked. They were picked by the owner. They didn't earn their way in. They were picked. So if they work 12 hours, it's because they got the privilege of working 12 hours. They got the privilege of serving all day long. Sometimes I've heard people say, who grew grew up in church, I wish I had my season of being wild. I've heard that. I'm like, what? What? You don't understand God's grace. And it's God's grace on your life that you got to serve him since you were a little kid. Don't get bitter about it. Talk to those who have partied their teenage and 20 and 30 and 40 year decades away. And ask them the kind of heartache they cause themselves. Be grateful it's God's grace that you've been serving him longer. Don't wish you were the thief on the cross coming into paradise at the last minute. So is there a next step for you? Here's some check engine lights. So, you know, because some check engine lights of the soul will tell us, oh, do I need to repent? A few symptoms. You're frustrated easily over other people's sins. Instead of saying, God, thank you that I'm not struggling with that. Not in a boastful way, but thank you, God, you rescued me from that. Oh, my heart of compassion for them. God, help them. Instead, you're frustrated. Why are they getting away with it? Why are they getting away with it? That's an indication that you have taken your eyes off the owner and you're looking at the people who are hired at 5 p.m. Frustration, anger. Sometimes anger at God. What the heck, God? You keep track of how much. You, st- you start to recite to God, I've been doing this for you. I've been serving. I've been sacrificing. I gave this much money and they didn't give anything. And you answered that prayer. And I've been wanting to get married. And they're married already. And they're not even serving you. Jealousy. Jealousy. We talked about that one. Jealousy. I've recognized in my own soul people who um, I think need to own something that they haven't owned sometimes have walked away from a relationship with me or God and when I've heard about a blessing on them I've recognized to my shame I'll admit it. (sighs) Maybe I shouldn't be the pastor of this church. I've recognized in my I don't think this. I don't think it. But I feel it. Like, that's not fair. They, they shouldn't be blessed with that until they repent of this. Yeah. Yeah. Shame on me, right? Shame on me. Those are some check engine lights that we have this in us. Now, what does repentance need mean for you if some of these check engine lights have gone off? Grumbling is another one. You just find yourself, like your prayer time is about grumbling. If your prayer time with God is grumbling, 
that's a good indication that you have slipped into this uh, I've earned a certain amount of rewards from you mindset. So what, what does repentance mean? I, I don't know what it means. Here's some maybes. Maybe it means you need to remember that you were chosen for the vineyard. You didn't earn your way in. If you're one of those people who have been like, I remember Jeff talking about how he's always been an all-in person. He went from being all-in with golf to all-in with this thing. And then when he gave his life to Jesus, it was all-in. Some people are not. Some people are like, uh, no, I'm holding on to like 90%. And it's like, it's like, it's a slow thing. And, and so um, if you are one of those all-in people, don't be mad that somebody else is going slow. Be thankful God's grace is on you. You got brought into the vineyard. Remember, oh my gosh, God, help you. You did, you, man, the work you did in my heart. Wow. I remember being upset with somebody in my 20s. Because I, I had ended these things in my life that weren't healthy and they were still struggling with it. And I was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. You said you gave your life to Jesus back then and you're still allowing this in your life now after nine years. I don't get it. And God convicted me of my pride and my self-righteousness. And he still does. Uh, next one. Maybe you need to remember God is in control of other people's growth. You're not in charge. You're not in charge. Anybody there? I need, I, I need to remember this. God's in charge. My spouse's growth. Why, why am I growing so much faster than my spouse? You ever think that? I never think that. I bet, I bet my wife thinks that though. God, why, why, is, why is one of my kids not growing in this area? I want to shake him. I want to. God's in control. God brings people into the vineyard. His spirit is what opens our hearts. Maybe, next one, you need to pray for God to bless someone who you think doesn't deserve it. And I mean really pray. That example I gave of somebody being blessed and that feeling that I get of, oh, that's not fair. That's an invitation to start praying for them. And go, God, bless them more. Bless them more. Bless them more. It's your kindness that leads people to repentance anyway. So pour out your kindness. Pour out your kindness. Pour out your kindness on them. Maybe you need to ask God to put to death your need for fairness. Maybe fair, you fall into the fairness trap a lot. It's not fair. It's not fair. I've noticed my kids in the morning, they are not waking up asking for coffee necessarily. But if my wife gives one of them a sip, the other two come scrambling. Well, where's my sip? Where's my sip? Hey, she got two sips. Let me, give, let me get two sips. It's not fair. So all of a sudden, they want it. When they didn't want it, because they would see what somebody else gets, it needs to be fair. We tell them all the time, we are going out of our way to make things unfair for you. Just be prepared for that. Why do you keep saying it's not fair? That is an invitation for us to keep doing what we're doing. But seriously, God, God, it, it's in all of us, so we need God to put it to death. The Holy Spirit will help you die to the fairness trap. He's faithful and he's powerful and he'll help you put it to death. Maybe you need to give thanks for being invited into the vineyard and chosen by his grace. And when I say give thanks, I really mean like give thanks. Like instead of your prayer time going right to God, fix this, fix that, fix this, fix that, fix that person, fix this person. Actually with your mouth profess, God, thank you. Thank you for what you did in my life. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Nobody can hear it anyway. Um, sorry, that was stupid of me. Um, but really, giving thanks 
changes my heart. Like God, the Bible talks about, with, you know, with our words, there's power. And so when we give thanks for what God's done in our life, it reminds us, man, it's all been by your grace. So you're going to do the same in that person's life and that person's life. And if they get blessed in a way different, oh, that's okay, that's okay. That's okay. And if we got hardships they don't have, God, you are still causing all things to work together for my good. I'm trusting that. I'm trusting that. If, you know, my little brother or sister gets married and I'm still single, I'm trusting it's okay, God, because you're after my joy. You got me covered. And then lastly, maybe you need to come to the vineyard for the first time. I've been speaking mostly to those who are the faithful ones, the Peters and the Johns and the Jameses, but maybe you're somebody like the rich young ruler, who up to this point, you've been like, nah, this is too important and this is too important and I can't let this go and I can't follow Jesus yet. Maybe today's a day where you step into the vineyard. You say, all right, I get it. Jesus is inviting me in. He's got blessings for me and rewards for me. I, I believe he came and he died on that cross for me and he rose from the grave for me. I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna give my life to him. I'm not earning salvation. I get it. Jesus paid it all. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. And if that is you, I invite you to be baptized. Maybe that's your, somebody else's next step, to get baptized. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus and you've never been baptized. You know what baptism is? I, I, I've always said baptism is our first act of, of obedience, and it is. Biblically, it's, it's what it says, right? You baptize after you trust in Jesus. It's also our first act of celebration. It's our first act of of expressing thankfulness for what God has done. That's what it also is. And so when I hear somebody say they believe that Jesus did this for them, but they're not ready to be baptized, it's like, you're not ready to celebrate Jesus? Don't you get it? That's, like, that's what it is. It's just celebrating. This is what Jesus has done. It sets us on a course of of. of breaking free from this metric system that we have of, oh, I got to earn, I got to have enough Bible knowledge, then I'll, then I'll get baptized. And then I'll, because that's, that's a dangerous uh, uh, precedent to set, to say, I'm not, I'm going to put off baptism until I feel like I'm ready, that we're going to be doing that the rest of our lives. Oh, I'm not ready for that blessing yet until I, oh, no, 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 I'm not ready to pray. I just screwed up yesterday. I've got to earn my way back in before I come to God in prayer. No, it's all Grace. It's all grace. Grace crushes entitlement. So those are some possible next steps for you guys. I'm going to invite the band in uh, up. We're going to sing a song called, called Gratitude. Go, go figure, right? We want to remember that we're entitled to nothing. If life was fair, we wouldn't get God. We wouldn't get eternity promised to us. We wouldn't get a new earth promised to us. Can we stand? If you've been struggling, just by a show of hands, if any of those maybes struck a chord with you, can you just put your hand up? Any of those maybes. You don't have to say which ones it was. Any of those maybes. Okay, okay. Walking it out is going to look different for each person. You could talk to somebody about that, maybe a confidant, a life group, accountability partner. But let's at least start with singing out loud. Out loud. With gratitude. 
about who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Let's start there. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with gratitude so that it drives out any sense of entitlement, any sense of comparison, any sense of jealousy, any frustration.